the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who share a lot of geeky interests and also a love for the Lord. I'm James, and hanging out with me, as always, are my buds, Mike and Brian. Brian, how are you doing? Good, sir? I'm doing quite well. How about you? I am doing great. Mike, my man, everything good? Everything is good. Cool. So, we'll just jump right into Geek Out. I'll start it off because I have got quite a plethora of subjects at my fingertips. A veritable cornucopia of geekdom? Indubitably. So the first thing I want to talk about is that I have been continuing going to archery practices with my daughter, and we have been having a fantastic time, despite the heat, which we have to shoot fast because we're in danger of the targets uh, melting. And it's, it's that hot out right now. I think it's that hot everywhere. So it turns into a flaming arrow practice when it wasn't necessarily before you loosed them. Well, well here, here's the trick. We're on the backside of a building, and so when we're shooting the arrows, we're in the shade, but the targets are in the sun. And so when you shoot the arrow and it catches on fire mid-flight, that, that's a whole new experience. I think that we could really combine different geeky hobbies. <laughs> because there are some people that have taken Blu-ray lasers out of a Blu-ray burner and then put them into a directional laser to actually light things on fire. If you can use a laser to light an arrow on fire before it hits the mark, then that's like a double bullseye or something. See, I want to take that to an SCA practice and be like, hey, you know what? There's a little anachronism in everything. So what if there's a Blu-ray laser on my bow? So what? Let's maybe be careful about that in Texas, though. Grass fires are bad. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So lasers uh, notwithstanding, we have been having a great time at archery practice, and uh, that's led me to anytime I get super interested in something, I have to research it more and more and find out more about it. I've been looking at bows and trying to find a starter bow for myself. I'm thinking about getting her one maybe for Christmas, as we talked about before. Uh, for myself, I just wanted something, you know, you go online and, of course, you'll find compound bows and hunting bows. But I wanted something simple, just like a, do you remember in school shooting archery and they were like the either bright red or green fiberglass bows? Fiberglass things. Yes. Yeah. Uh, basically, I'm looking for something like that. Because they'd make those in heavier poundage than what we shot in school. I was wanting a 35-pound bow, fiberglass, something that will last forever. And I've been able to find some on eBay, which are going from between 40 and $50. I think that is a good starter bow. Of course, I've also found people who hand-make period longbows. And I'm like, well, that would be cool to have. I, I don't I don't know how to shoot a longbow. That's, five or $600 probably. I don't have five or $600 either, exactly. And we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. First, let's, I'd like to get to the point where every, when I shoot six arrows at a time, I'm not having to go past the target into the grass to find half of them. Once we get to the point where I'm putting all arrows on target, then uh, we'll look at maybe getting a more expensive bow. But for right now, just having something a lot cheaper that I can call my own. And uh, because even though lately the archery practices have consisted of myself, my daughter, and sometimes one other person, once the weather cools down, a lot more people do show up. 
So I don't want to have to rely on, on the loner bow, which might not be there. Makes sense. I've also wanted to make my own forearm guard, so the string will stop leaving red marks on my arm. And I was like, well, you know, I could buy one off of Amazon or somewhere, or I could just make my own, because that's what you do in the SCA. Why buy when you can make? I actually found a close-by Tandy leather store, and shops like that also always offer classes. A while ago, they had a, like on a Saturday morning, a make-your-own-archery-arm-guard class. Wow. Yeah, seriously. So I, like, and it was only like 35 bucks, which covered the materials. So I went and did it. And, you know, they measured my circumference of my arm and we cut the leather. We got the basic shape of it all cut out and ready. And it's not finished because, you know, since I want this to look as medieval as possible, I'm adding a lot of, I'm doing a lot of tooling to it. And this also gave me excuse to go and buy some leatherworking tools. It became a much bigger project than I initially set it out to be. But when it's done, I think it will look cool. Like, I even found this website, Arms and Armor Castings, and I bought a few 13th, 14th century styled brass buckles from them to strap it on with. Okay, so you're going all out for this one, which... So $60 for a bow and $120 for accoutrements. Okay, no, <laughs> they're, they're castings of 13, 14th century buckles, and they actually only cost about a buck fifty each. I didn't buy actual buckles from the 13, 14th century. <laughs> yeah, but when you buy 150 of those one and two dollar buckles... Well, the leather and the glass and the tools. What makes you think I bought that many? I bought three. For okay, starters. I bought six, but that's beside the point. <laughs> Next week it'll be 12. It's been a slow-going project, but I'm hoping to get finished before the fall hits and the archery starts up more earnestly. Uh, what else? I finally got around to, on Netflix, watching the series Lost in Space, the reboot that they did. Have you guys seen that? Uh, no, I, have. I haven't. Fantastic. That's what I hear. Absolutely fantastic. I remember as a kid watching the original, which at that point had already been in syndication for forever, and... Even as a kid, I thought, this is fun, but really campy. So when I saw that Netflix was doing a reboot, I, I had a little trepidation. But then I watched it, and I was like, okay, they kept the heart and dropped the camp. It is very well done. And if you're a fan of the movie version of The Martian uh, with Matt Damon, there's a lot of things about this show that you're going to like. Once again, the technology is very believable. It looks like things which we... It's, a lot of it is technology that we have right now, but it's several generations ahead where it's been uh, finely tuned and, you know, peer-reviewed and, and made more compact and modular. And it's great. Uh, the acting is wonderful. And some of the twists in it are great. Um, the science is believable. And a good show like that is one where they have, like, theoretical and or science you may not be very familiar with. And when they bring it in, it makes you learn. Like, a uh, little bit of spoilers, but there's a scene in, I think it's like the second episode, where the mom, I forget the character's names, but Mrs. Robinson, she thinks something is weird with the planet they're on. And so she gets herself in a high-altitude balloon, like you do. And goes up into just, just like, I mean, she's like, she's at the very tip of the stratosphere. 
like she's a hop, skip, and a jump away from orbit. And she's in her spacesuit, and she's looking at the sun, and she gets her little computer going, and the computer pipes up and goes, Caution, Hawking radiation detected. And my first thought was, I paused it, because I thought, okay, one, if you're going to make up an imaginary type of radiation, kudos to you for naming it after Stephen Hawking. <laughs> right. Well done. But then I had this thought in my head, I'm like, no. I don't think they named a radiation after him. I think, if anything, he probably thought up of a type of radiation and named it after himself. So I, I paused the show, got online, looked up Hawking radiation, and I found out that Hawking radiation is the electromagnetic radiation that, in theory, should be emitted by a black hole. Uh, and I was like, oh, that's wonderful. So was it named for or by Stephen Hawking. I mean, I, I can see some other astrophysicists. I think it was named love. by him. By him. Uh, it's okay. the particles for which their antiparticles have fallen into the black hole. So you've got antiprotons, and the protons have gone in, or the protons have gone in, the antiprotons have, come, have not. Mm -hmm. The article I read, it, it just says that it's named after him. Who knows if he did it himself or not, because he was the one who provided the theoretical ar argument for its existence back in 74. Well, I mean, one way or the other, he's earned it. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the that's, that's the, going over, like going through my head is like I cannot fathom why the computer didn't pipe in and say, "Thanks to you, Mrs. Robinson." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the fact that they put that in there, and I just love the fact that you know, suddenly I knew, like, the only two people on the show that knew that there was a danger from a black hole was myself and Mrs. Robinson, and she hadn't even said it yet. It kind of upped the suspense. Excellent writing in the show. And uh, Brian, I know you've seen it. Mike, I recommend you check it out. The only thing that really bothered me was the lack of any safety features in the airlock. Oh, yeah, when that dude gets spaced? Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is the thing is that I, I think that OSHA goes away sometime in the not-too-distant future. Clearly. Yeah. The thing about airlocks is everybody's getting blown out of them. Start with the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and forward. Somebody's always getting flushed out an airlock. Yeah, it happens in Star Wars. It happens in Star Trek. And Star Trek is like if OSHA started up a Starfleet service. They've got the backup. they got the backup for the backup. They've got the safety systems for the backup. They've got the override for the backup and the backup. And yet, you know, for some reason... And yet there's still not a safety switch in the airlock. Yeah, and also the second that they bump into something, shields go offline and half the panels on the bridge blow out. <laughs> you know, you would think that installing a bunch of magnesium components in the bridge panel would have tipped them off something could go wrong, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and if we want to get onto things that bug me about Star Trek, which I generally love, you know, just, just come back to me because we got, we got plenty <laughs> okay, of love. Okay, okay. let's get back to my geek out, though. Oh, all right. <laughs> also, not long ago, just a couple of weekends ago, was uh, San Diego Comic Con. Oh, yeah. And a bunch of trailers dropped from that, which got me really excited about uh, the new Harry, not Harry Potter, but the new Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them a movie trailer came out. It looks wonderful again. Uh, we got a trailer for the second season of The Orville, which cannot come out soon enough. Uh, we also got a trailer for Aquaman with Jason Momoa, which looks great. And when my wife and I saw the trailer for the movie Shazam, I'm I got, so looking forward to that. I got kind of confused, really, because, wait a minute, uh, <laughs> did did Shazam get sold to Marvel? 
because uh, this does not look like a DC movie. I'm actually enjoying this. This looks fun and wonderful. Yeah, you're going to just get everybody confused. Because, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Captain you know, Marvel has a weird history. Mm-hmm. Actually, the character that we call Shazam is Captain Marvel. Yeah, that's the name, um, the original name for the character. Oh, no. Right, and the copyright lapsed at some point, and then both DC and Marvel grabbed the character. And because Marvel's name is Marvel, they got to use the trademark. So the comic that DC was publishing was called Shazam, but it was about the character Captain Marvel. And then to get things even more confusing, the current Captain Marvel is named Carol Danvers. And the current Supergirl is Kara Danvers. And then Shazam and Captain Marvel movies are both coming out within a month of each other. It's getting really hard to keep it all straight. <laughs> I think the word Byzantine is applicable here. Yes. You are so right. And the gentleman who they have playing Shazam, uh, Zachary Levi, I have seen him in absolutely nothing. I know he's he most well-known in the TV show Chuck, which, I'm going to be honest, haven't seen a single episode. Well, you should. I like it a lot. I know the premise of the show. I know he plays a someone who works at a computer store as like one of their IT or computer specialists, computer repairmen. Somehow he gets all of the NSA's secrets downloaded into his head and now becomes like the most valuable security asset in the nation. The entire show is him geeking out about getting to be a super spy. It's it's wonderful. I might have to check that out then. That sounds really amusing. He's not someone I would have ever pegged for a character like Shazam, but the trailer has really got me liking him. He's playing an eight-year-old who suddenly... Well, no, in the trailer, the kid doesn't look like he's eight. He looks like he's... He looks like he's around 12, maybe. Yeah, I was going to say 13, 14, like middle school, maybe early high school. But a kid who suddenly is given superpowers and the body of an adult. And it looks great. I, if you haven't, if anyone out there hasn't seen it yet on YouTube, check it out. The other trailer that came out, which has me properly geeking out, and I posted this video on our Facebook page, is for Godzilla, King of Monsters. Oh, are they doing? Uh, are they doing CG Godzilla or dude in a suit Godzilla or a little column A and a little column B? <laughs> it is CG Godzilla, but not 1998 CG Godzilla. <laughs> um, this is a this is a sequel to the. I think it was 2014 Godzilla, and it looks so good. They're starting to bring in more monsters from the Godzilla lore. We'll have Godzilla, of course. We'll have Mothra. We'll have Rodan. And one that is known as Monster Zero or King Ghidorah. And I just, I can't wait. And in watching the trailer, they've got sneak peeks, just little glimpses of these monsters all set to the classical piano piece, Clear de Lune. And as I'm watching it, I'm like, wait a minute. This this is a trailer about giant monsters. Why am I feeling things? Why is this trailer making me feel? <laughs> this is not the response to this trailer I was expecting. Still a better love story than Twilight. Completely. So <laughs> that that comes out May of next year. And a good dear friend of mine who lives in San Antonio, who is even more so of a kaiju lover than I am, I've already told him, I'm like, Michael, May of next year, 
I'm expecting you to make the trip up here, and we're seeing this together. And he responded back, you had me at hello. <laughs> oh, what other fun things have been going on? It's been quite a few episodes. Actually, it may have even been a full year, and that's embarrassing for me. But you'll remember when I talked about putting together a bug-out bag. Oh, clearly. Mm-hmm. Well, I did something on a smaller scale than that. I thought about what things from a bug-out bag can I carry with me every day just in case of small, minor emergencies or would also just be handy to have with me. A lot of people out there would call it an EDC kit, an everyday carry. So after doing some research and uh, over time some shopping, I put together my own EDC kit. And it's all put into a small, or not really small, this thing's about seven inches by nine inches, but a organization pouch. It's something I carry with me all the time in my bag where I take it to work or anywhere. And it's got things in it that either I can use or would need to use every day or in case of an emergency and stuff that I just might need. So are you talking like stuff you might need like stop bleeding or just general handiness kit? More like general handiness. This would be like if if there was an emergency and I need to get home, since I live in an urban area, some of this stuff would come in handy. I'll go through it briefly because what I'm planning on doing is before we get the podcast posted online, I'm going to shoot a video review of my EDC kit to which I will post onto YouTube and will also put on the Geek at Arms page and Facebook page. Very cool going through what I've got and why I have it in here. But briefly, some of the things I've got in here is I have an extra flashlight. I've got a couple of tubes of chapstick, a couple of pins, a Sharpie. I have a lighter. I've got a small screwdriver kit. I've got a spare jump drive, USB jump drive. I've got a small Leatherman and a waterproof tube that has some ibuprofen. It's got some non-drowsy Dramamine. And the reason non-drowsy Dramamine is because the normal Dramamine, after I take it, in about 30 to 40 minutes, I feel like a bear that's been shot in the butt with a tranquilizer dart. You sound like you do that often. (laughs) It happens. All I want to do is take a nap and eat a hoagie. That's all I feel like doing after taking Dramamine. But anyway, it also has quite a few Excedrin migraine. That's because I carry Excedrin migraine with me everywhere because Brian can test to this. When I get one, I get unhappy. James is no fun. Yeah, they're no joke. It's, it's not a joke at all. I also carry like a small sealed pouch, which I keep some Band-Aids and uh, some alcohol wipes and more. And uh, Can I'll I go- give you a couple of suggestions? Please do. Since you've already got the Leatherman. I mean, that's pretty versatile. A couple of other things that I carry, say, in my bike repair bag are zip ties and mm-hmm. just a little small roll of duct tape. I like the zip tie idea. I've, I've seen other people who have done that with theirs. And if you go to YouTube and you type in EDC kit, you're going to find dozens and dozens of videos of people who have put their own together. Zip ties are one that come up often. Uh, I don't have duct tape in here, but I do have a couple of different lengths of 550 paracord. And I know you're not exactly fond of paracord, Mike. I like it, but I do think I'm going to throw some zip ties in here as well, because that is a good idea. I've used them for emergency bike repairs. I one time even used it in a simulated failure for climbing on single rope technique, where some of my climbing gear had had failed. They had me clip in and they say, okay, this part of your gear has broken. This part of your gear is broken. 
now re-rig your ascending system. And with what I had on hand, zip tie, zip tie, and I was off and running again. You know, they're so small, and we don't give them a lot of thought, but zip ties really are just some handy and sturdy little things, aren't they? You know, it's the next best fix-it to duct tape. Mm Mm-hmm and sometimes superior depending on the job. One thing I will say about my EDC kit is that everything that is within here, including the Leatherman, is allowed on a flight. I went to a TSA's website and looked up their rules for tools, lighters, and every tool I have is under three inches, and the Leatherman I have is a Leatherman Style PS. It's a small one, you fold it out, it's got the pliers, it's got a file, got a pair of scissors and a flathead screwdriver, does not have a knife blade. And you can always make up for the lack of a knife blade with a small packet of razor blades, mm-hmm. which you could always, the TSA wants your razor blades, then great. Yep. Oops, I forgot them in there. Here, you but, can have them. Yeah, but everything else I have in here, I can have it zipped up, I can have it in my bag, and it'll go through an x-ray and a TSA checkpoint, no problem at all. So as long as you don't melt it down to a liquid, you're fine. Yep, exactly. <laughs> And even the lighter, I was really surprised that, like, a normal-sized big lighter is okay to take through. That I did not know. Neither did I. But uh, I've got it all inside of a VanQuest organization pouch. And like I said, I'll go through it in detail in the YouTube video. And I will do my best once I figure out the system. I will post a link to everything within that I purchased on Amazon. And we're more than happy to help you with that. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. That is going to wrap it up for me as far as Geek Out. I have one more, but mine ties into something that Brian is going to talk about during his Geek Out, so I'll hold on to it for right now. (laughs) So who wants to go next? I think you just kind of paved the path for Brian to go right ahead. Yeah, but I made Brian go ahead of when he was supposed to a couple of episodes ago, so I don't want to be that guy again. Uh, Well, then can I I be that guy? Do it. Do it, Brian. Mike's like, I'll be that guy. After our uh, discussion of the Forbidden Planet, I got a little bit more interested in the science fiction of the 1940s and 50s. So I went back and I read some 50s short stories, and I also picked up the first book of the Lensman series by E.E. Smith. Um, And after having read those short stories, I feel I owe a deep, heartfelt apology to Philip K. Dick because I was very critical of his writing style in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? But I read one of his short stories, and it was much different. I mean, so I'm thinking now... You were criticizing mm-hmm. the part where they were talking about the Byzantine sentence structure surrounding his lead cup. So... Yes. <laughs> but now having seen another example of his writing style that was nothing at all like that, I think he was actually, his author's voice was modified to indicate what humanity on Earth was like at that time. Mm. That there's been so much radiation and people are literally brain damaged by it. And that showed through in the voice he was using in the novel. Now, I'm going to have to read a few more things to kind of sell myself on that idea. But I think maybe I judged him too harshly. And then... I also read, we mentioned it a little bit earlier, The Martian, uh, which is not, of course, 50s science fiction, but it's kind of in that same vein at times, that hard sci-fi. Yeah. Really, really enjoyed it. That is the distinction of being one of the small number of books that I have picked up in the morning and put down completely finished in the evening. 
I did not read it that fast, <laughs> but I did read it pretty quick. I didn't intentionally mean to. I just couldn't stop. <laughs> I generally read while I'm walking to work, so I kind of have a definitive time with, okay, it's time to stop reading now. I'm at work or I'm crossing an intersection. I should not be reading right now. I have the hardest time walking and reading, so pass off to you. I mean, And the fact that he does this in the middle of L.A., I mean, bravo, sir. <laughs> you are the bravest among us. Do you ever have well, any been... comments about your walking and reading? Uh, there have been a few people who've said something about it. I had a coworker who was really worried about me. Oh, you've got your head in that book. You're going to get run over by a car. Like, I don't do it while I'm crossing the street. And, I mean, really, you can't really tell you from everybody else who's looking at their tablets crossing the street. Right. So, yeah, I was really into a reread of Macbeth at one point. And so, you know, I just couldn't put it down on that last stretch from the train station to work. And I had, had an analyst stop and ask me about it. That got really interesting. <laughs> See. I'm picturing Brian just walking along, he's reading The Martian. Next thing you know, he's going down some stairs. He's gone into a... Uh, do, do they have a subway system in L.A.? Yes, they do. He goes into a subway car. Next thing you know, he gets out of it. He's never stopped walking this entire time. He's just going from car... <laughs> People just very politely are he opening the, up the, the train. He's walking up the train. He gets out of it, gets bumped, and, you know, takes a left. He looks up. He's like, how am I in the flower district? <laughs> See, I'm imagining this with his face in that book. Somebody tries to pick his pocket. He very casually breaks the person's wrist, turns the page, keeps on walking. <laughs> yeah, I, I never really thought that we'd be talking about, you know, superheroes, superhero powers. Walking while reading a book is a superhero <laughs> power. I mean, what a known. Well, I am weirdly sure-footed. <laughs> um, I always have been for some reason. This is I don't where know why. this is where we find out that the John Wick movies were actually based on Brian, but only when he's reading. <laughs> right. See, if you're that sure-footed, why don't you come over to my place and we'll set up a slack line and we'll see if you can read while slacklining. Now that's a video. <laughs> that I would, would probably be pushing it. <laughs> it's practice, Brian. It's just practice. <laughs> the officers are like, okay, so how did he die? He's book slack lining is like i didn't dare him <laughs> it was I a darwin award <laughs> this is not my idea officer i have no idea don't listen to this episode so like funny enough he was reading something by darwin when he died <laughs> well moving right along i had the opportunity recently i went up and visited a friend in oregon joel who i've mentioned a couple times he was the producer of hangry bunnies from mars yes but he did a bad thing See, he bought the Tales from the Loop role-playing game and then moved out of town. Oh, oh. That, that's just mean. Yeah. So I had to go all the way up to Oregon in order to participate in a session. And he gave me the opportunity to be a, a guest star, one of the kind of antagonists to the regular group. Oh, that's always that fun. That was a lot of fun. And Tales from the Loop has some interesting features to it. All of the characters are kids, ranging from... 11 to 15 years old. If your character turns 16, they're out of the game. And the kids cannot die. There's no provision made for a PC being killed, which is in keeping with, I think we mentioned it in the past, but Tales from the Loop is trying to channel those 80s adventure movies, E.T., Explorers, The Goonies. Mm -hmm. um, and so while the kids are always in peril, 
they're never actually in danger of being killed. They're just in danger of getting older. Right. <laughs> well, if there's not a um, lesson there, I don't know what is. <laughs> and interestingly, the way the game is written, if you're if you as the player have a birthday, your character has a birthday, and that's when they level up. Oh wow. And, I thought uh, that you were going to say that uh, that taking damage instead of dying, what they do is they get older, and so you're just one step <laughs> closer to them getting out of the game. And the depression and the ennui of existence as it presses down upon <laughs> you that that figures into uh, negative character traits. Oh yeah, and that's like you know the oh I don't believe in that kid stuff anymore. I can't believe we play make believe. We went like to Narnia and stuff. Oh how childish. I think we need to develop this mechanic into a game. That would be interesting. But the damage mechanic is, as a kid gets hurt or discouraged, upset, scared, they accumulate these traits, and each trait that they get is a minus one to all of their rolls. And then if you get a certain number, or if you're required to take a penalty that you already have, then the character is broken, and they automatically fail all rolls from then on until they're brought back out of that broken state. So at some point you wind up with these kids that cannot succeed at an action. And so the entire rest of the group has to act in such ways to prevent that player from ever needing to roll dice, oh, which wow. is interesting. And then at, at the end of each adventure, there's a, a situation in which you go into what they call extended trouble where instead of each character having something that they have to accomplish, the entire group has to roll together. And you have to achieve a certain number of successes across the whole group in order to win. And so you're looking at your character sheet and seeing, okay, what skill do I have to roll that I get to roll the most dice? And which really pushes people to act toward their role, their particular strengths of that character. It's a very, very interesting system, but... The most mechanistic parts of it is just roll d6s, and sixes are a success. And for most most actions, one success is enough. For really, really hard stuff, up to three. So the, the dice rolling is really simple, but the way they twist it a little bit is very fascinating. Sounds it. <laughs> and that's pretty much all I had to say on the geek out topic at the moment. The final bit of my geek out rolls along perfectly with yours. You got to play Tales of the Loop to which I am very jealous. The last thing on mine was that I read that Amazon is going to be turning Tales from the Loop into a TV show. That's I mean, it sounds like it would fit right into some of the, the nostalgia that they're really capitalizing on these mm -hmm. days. I read that it's being developed in tandem with Fox Studios. I don't know when it will come out. The first season's going to consist of eight one-hour episodes. They don't know if it's going to take place in Sweden or Nevada, which apparently the American version is based in. When you played it, were the characters in Nevada? Yeah, we were in Boulder City, Nevada. Gotcha. So I hope that they keep it in Sweden. I think that would be cool. I mean, Sweden, Nevada, I mean, there's a lot of similarities there. the same place. <laughs> it really is. Both on... That's about it, really. Yeah. <laughs> so, let's face it, this is definitely kind of riding on the coattails of the whole Stranger Things success. Mm -hmm. But honestly, it's just different enough, and the premise is cool, and the artwork is absolutely fantastic. I mean, we've talked about 
the artist Simon Stalinhog several times, whether just the artwork or the game or the fact that they're also making it into a video game. We've talked about him several times, so I hope that it does become a TV show. I'll certainly be checking it out. Mike Stern. Yeah, oh man, it's a matter of how do we pare down what I've been doing into manageable bits. One thing that I really feel like we have to share, because it's been a little while since it happened, but went out to visit my parents, and my dad had this great idea of taking me to an air museum. And my eldest daughter, just her eyes lit up. She's like, well, I know that you're planning on me going to high tea with grandma and my sister and my mom, but can can we do the Air Force thing? Because I think I want to do the Air Force thing. And... It was a museum that had such a high degree of specificity that it was talking about one particular air division that predominantly focused on the B-17 Flying Fortress bombing in Germany in World War II. And we just happened to be in the right place at the right time where the right guy who volunteered there worked on a B-17 that they had in the museum. And the three of us, my dad, my daughter, and I, were just glued to whatever he was saying. And then he took us kind of off tour and took us into the aircraft. And this, I mean, we're talking down to the rivet and the dial, 80% restored. Just how giddy were you at that point? Oh, my gosh, you could (laughs) not imagine. I mean, I don't know a whole lot about the B-17, but I know a whole lot more now about it thanks to that guy because we spent like an hour in that plane. And he's like, oh, well, we don't really have a whole lot of room to sit here, so uh, you sit at the pilot control. You sit at the co-pilot control. He said to my daughter, why don't you climb over down into the bombardier hatch? <laughs> and there was at some point some other tech was opening up a hatch and there was my daughter sitting like right there in a place where you don't usually expect to see a 13-year-old girl. (laughs) And at first he was shocked, and then he realized, oh, wait, no, this is okay. And then he looked up at who was talking to us, and he said, oh, gosh, that guy, he talks forever. And my daughter was like, no, no, we don't mind. (laughs) And at any point did you happen to hear this very loud but from, from far away teenage girl voice yell bombs away followed by a very loud clang i mean i think that was going through our heads the whole dang time so we're gonna call that a yes <laughs> the thing that struck me with that that i hadn't really thought through but it's a serious logistic is how many kill switches there were to detonate the various radios of the different frequencies so if the plane was going down any member of the crew could detonate the radio so that the Nazis couldn't get a hold of the frequencies. That's something I never even thought of, but it makes complete sense. Yeah. So that... <laughs> Did it lead to any, like, you going, what's this button do? And him going, don't touch that. Uh, it led to a lot of, well, what does this do? And he's like, oh, let me tell you about that. That was for... And then he would go on. <laughs> and then there was the, oh, what does this do? And he was like, oh, that, there's a funny story about how we even got that part. So, I mean, it was, it was just incredible when you, have, when you have a passionate person 
who's knowledgeable and has an audience that is just engaged in the wealth of their experience. Cool. So that's one thing. Did you meet anyone else at this trip? He, he asks this loaded question. Oh, I think <laughs> that I met Steve Rogers. Yeah, Steve Rogers was there. Uh, Captain America. Oh, I, I, I thought you were talking about Steve Rogers, the insurance salesman, but... Yeah, no, not him. Captain America. No. There's a... <laughs> there's this group apparently out there in Pooler, Georgia, or thereabouts, uh, that actually run a... It's kind of like a superhero ministry, if you will. They do a lot of visiting in terms of children's hospitals, children's camps, prisons, and they adapt what they're doing basically to make connections with the individuals that are there. And some of them are positive life lessons, and some of them are Christian ministry-based, depending on what the type of audience that they're speaking to and the setting. So they were some pretty cool guys, and I talked to them via email and a bit over social media afterwards. And the ministry group name was Heroes Overcome. So, yeah, it was interesting getting to uh, getting connected with them uh, after running into them at the museum. In terms of some of the other things that I've been up to, I, I decided to feed my retro gaming part of my nerddom. And I decided to pick up the NES game, put a bid in on eBay. For 6 bucks. I got a cartridge of the original NES Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, I had I had that game. Yeah. So did I. And one of those things that I, I think that part of the review process starts at the bidding. And if you're able to get it for six bucks, there's a reason why people have not been scrambling all over themselves in order to get this game. <laughs> that was not great. Yeah. It has some mechanics that are great. Just level design isn't one of them. Mm-hmm. When I got it, I honestly thought that I was getting the TMNT game that was in the arcades. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. I think everybody did. And then what we got was a side-scrolling platformer, which was obscenely more difficult than anyone would have ever imagined. You know, it's not just that it's difficult. I mean, it is that, but just some of the way that the levels are designed is just kind of punishing. And one of the things that I cannot stand is when they make a tricky jump pivotal to completing some section of a level. Mm -hmm. And it's not just, you know, jumps can be challenging, but you kind of got to build people up to a pattern of it before you give somebody either an insta-jib or you have them fall in the water and it brushes you to some other forsaken part of the level. And then to only give you three continues is just kind of a mess. I, I feel like plugging in the Game Genie is what would make the game fair. Yeah, it's funny that the second that you brought up the jump, it's been so long since I played it, but my mind went instantly to that moment in that level. I just had a flashback to all of the hours and days until I finally got it, until I finally figured out the trick. Yeah, and it's one of those things that if you have a jump that will take you back to an earlier part of a level, it's sloppy game design because what you're doing is you're adding hours of gameplay to play and play and play the same section of level over and over again. That's, that's not challenge. 
that's tedium. Yeah. But, I mean, I will say this, that they had a number of mechanics that I did like. The fact that you could switch freely between the turtles at any time, that you could collect secondary weapons and use them as tools to finish the section of the level as you need was also, I think, kind of a great mechanic. And one thing that I think that they should have carried over into the, into the second game, the, the arcade port, is giving the turtles different speeds of attack and different powers of attack. Make them distinct. Make them different. Mm-hmm. So that much, I think, is praiseworthy. Now, whether I'm actually going to finish the game, that's, that's another question. <laughs> you have until the next podcast to get to it. Mm, challenge refused. Anyway. <laughs> so, oh, fine. Your punishment is Battletoads. <laughs> oh, oh, come on. Let's, oh. let's, let's not get... We, we don't want to be cruel, Brian, okay? We don't want to be getting a call because we violated the Geneva Convention. <laughs> you violated more than that oh jeez you know i don't think i ever played that game just because it had such a terrible reputation for being a beastly game i played it on a on a friend's console i always prided myself a patient person you know i was never one of those people who wanted to break the controller or really get angry at a game but for the first time, and one of the only times ever, I found myself wanting to throw the controller through the wall. <laughs> well, you've definitely told me on wanting to try that one. <laughs> the last thing that's kind of been going through my, you know, not kind of, it is hardcore been engaging the geek portions of my brain is a number of episodes ago, I talked about how I was thinking about a campaign and trying to draw people into a campaign. Well, it happened. And Good. We're, it, we're in, and it was a, it's really kind of an amazing kind of group that we put together because it's two people from my church. And, you know, with your clergy, that's, that's kind of an interesting thing because it's, it's you know, is it friendship time or is it professional time? Ah, I'll just count it as my hours. No, just kidding. <laughs> and also my wife, who is often my partner in crime with role-playing games, but also this time are the two kids. And so it's an intergenerational experience of how do we play through this narrative together while telling the kids, you're playing adult characters. So... What do you think an adult would do in this situation? And it's easy enough when they're immersed enough in fiction to say this is how characters navigate fictional environments. And they're actually playing it with some degree of sophistication, which is really pretty surprising. Though there is a thing that I need to stop and take stock of and that children don't know certain things about the world, like how loans work, or how repossessing a starship is different from stealing one. <laughs> but yeah, the the role playing group also has somebody in it who has never role played before ever. And though that's not entirely unusual with the sort of games that I run, she was kind of doing it at the request of her husband, so that. She was saying, okay, I'll give this a shot, but she wasn't sure that she was really in. And so I pitched it as, okay, we're going to do four to six adventures, and at the end of the story arc, you can say, I bail. This isn't for me, and there's no pressure. 
So you have an easy out. But I don't think that's going to happen because with the way that we set up the narrative, it was the day of the Battle of Scarif in Rogue One. Their ship was shot down and landed well outside of the, the target area. Every other member of the landing party was killed except for them. And then they just watched the Death Star blow the Citadel sky high. The adventure begins. You mentioned something about this a couple of podcasts ago. I'm going to say it again. I really want to play this game. <laughs> oh, man. Do you know what was great about that is that I even loaded up the music from Rogue One as the Death Star was firing on the planet of Scarif or as the, during the Battle of Scarif. So the tension of this is just ramping up and up as I do the countdown of, well, two hours ago, you were scrambled together to do this. Five minutes ago, you screamed past the planetary shield. So many minutes ago, you were engaged by TIE fighters. And then 30 seconds ago, you watched the Citadel get reduced to ash. What do you do? I'm picturing two characters, each facing a different direction. One sees the Citadel get blasted and thinks, oh, guys, we've got a big problem. The other character is facing the exact opposite way, sees where the laser blast went to, and thought, no, we got a bigger problem. Exactly. <laughs> so, and the campaign is, is still going pretty strong. It's a second adventure in, but still. They managed to escape Scarif with a stolen ship, which they stole it from another base on the planet. Because I'm figuring, okay, you shield so, an entire planet. There's more than one base there. So this is just from a pure Star Wars geeky question standpoint. We see that when the Death Star destroys the city of Jeddah, it's basically a straight down shot and obliterates the city. It's, it's cracked the mantle of this planet. Hasn't destroyed it, but this planet is in a bad way. When it's on Scarif, it's not a straight down shot. It's more of like an angle that the Death Star fires, how much damage did it do to the planet? Obviously, we see the big shockwave approaching the Imperial emplacement and taking out many characters and the installation, but you've got your players on this planet, yeah. and this may not have been something that you considered in the game, but how much damage did it do to the planet itself? It's amazing that you ask that, because it ties so much into the backstories of these characters. After they were able to escape the planet, they went directly to the Imperial Bureau of Ecological Protection and reported what had happened. <laughs> and the rest of the campaign is just structured around the, the political intricacy and the restoration of the ecology of this planet. Its side quests abound in terms of replenishing the compatible biology in the planet and eradicated species. This is just mapping out all of where we're going. I'll be honest. The fact that the Empire even has a department like that is, I mean, I, I find it to be very progressive for them. Good for you. No, I'm lying. I was going to say, well, if they're going to want to just role play bureaucracy. Yeah, I was about to say, if the Empire was willing to do all that for Scarif, they're really going to have their hands full for Endor. I yeah, oh, those Ewoks are going to be catching chunks of Death Star for ages. <laughs> well, and it's funny you mentioned that because 
I also decided that the ship that they stole had a damaged hyperdrive, and so they're working on their backup hyperdrive to get to their next location. Well, by the time they get their ship traded out, they're right now in between adventures in hyperspace back to Yappen on a clean ship with an activating hyperdrive. What they don't realize is that the end of Episode Four already happened. <laughs> So they're going to come out of hyperspace to a huge debris field and an evacuated base and an Imperial landing party coming to scavenge over it and debrief probably minutes after they get there. And you really just love pulling the rug out from underneath your players, don't you? What it's going to be is it's going to be a few adventures of being on the ropes and then they're going to catch hold of a strand and then they're going to catch hold of another strand and then they're going to catch hold of another strand and tie them all together. So, yeah, there's going to be some rug pulling, but then they're going to be able to build the tapestry back together, and I'm going to use their backstories to do it. Cool. And for any of our listeners who don't play a role-playing game, I have to tell you this. I'm so sorry. That was like a lot of time. (laughs) (laughs) You probably ought to get used to it because we talk about role-playing a lot. Yeah. Have you ever taken a look at some of the other Christian geekery podcasts that are out there? D&D is like the major thing that they talk about. Well, you turned me on to another Christian gaming podcast where they primarily talk about role-playing games. I think it's called Saving the Game. They are so good. I really enjoyed it a lot. And if I didn't need another reason to really get back into doing a role-playing game, they have just added more fuel to the fire. Like, part of me wants to go off and start gushing about these other podcasts, but I think that's maybe an episode in of itself. I'm not really sure. I agree. I think that would be a good episode where we talk about some of the other podcasts that we listen to, including a section about just primarily Christian ones. We'll have to save that for a later date. You hear that, Saving the Game? We're coming for you. And we got a plate of brownies. (laughs) Well, speaking of other audio mediums, we've talked about this off and on, and that's the subject of audio fiction. Yeah. Like uh, different types of audio fiction that we've enjoyed, where it is, where it's been, where it's going. Mike, you were the first one to bring that up. Where did you want to go with it? What are your thoughts? Oh, man. I mean, let's, let's get real with what audio fiction is. I mean, if you're really into it, audio fiction happens the first time somebody opens a book to you and starts reading it aloud to you with conviction and passion. So go thank Miss Brown back in kindergarten if she got you riveted to where you were <laughs> listening. As for me and my audio fiction, I think that my passion for it really developed out of first reading and then listening to the original radio drama, which predated the books for The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It was first a radio drama and then adapted to the page. And it's one of those things that you can tell with good audio fiction is that it isn't written for the page. It's written for the ear. Does it have a flow? Does it sound good? And I think that's one of the things where we kind of get caught up. I am one of our listeners, and I want to give another shout out to Dunedin Jets 
thanks for raising this, but you raised it like two days ago. So I couldn't go out and get the audio book that you were recommending and listening to it because it was just so poor. And his critique of one of the new Star Wars books was you might be able to read that page, but it sounds awful once it's an audio book. Like, you should check it out. It's so bad, is what he said. So I guess my question is, what makes good audio fiction? I think what makes good audio fiction is kind of the same thing that makes good fiction. And a lot of that is in the eye of the beholder or in the, in the mind of the reader. Is it something that you enjoy? Do you like the stories? Do you like the plot? Do you like where it's going? Do you consider it to be well-written or, in this case, well-written and well-performed? Because with audio fiction, you're adding that extra layer to the experience. True that. And since, you know, it is in the eye of the beholder, and you are the beholder, I'm asking you, James, um, <laughs> who do you think is a good performer? Like, you mentioned performer. Mm-hmm. So who performs audio fiction audiobooks well? Well, for one example, let me go back to my earliest, what I remember to be one of my earliest experiences with it. Growing up in Kansas, we used to make regular trips down to the Dallas, Texas area to visit family between five or six times a year. Now, back in the 80s, this was when the speed limit was like 50 or 55, I think, was the max. And I'm sitting in the back seat of a Cutlass Supreme. And while it's a nice big back seat, I'm having to share it with a sister. And this was the days before Game Boy, before tablets, cell phones. Yeah, before seat belts. (laughs) And while I, you know, had some toys to entertain myself it was a long car ride but one thing that my parents got they got a couple of cassette tapes of stories from lake wobegon oh broadcast from a prairie home companion and so i would get uh, garrison keeler and these other voice actors and musicians who would do different skits, sketches, and songs based in that town, you know, where all the women are strong, all the men are good-looking, and all the children are above average. And I loved them. I loved those tapes because it really uh, encouraged my imagination. I could see it all in my mind's eye as it was being read. And that was the highlight of the trip to me, besides it being over, <laughs> was listening to these tapes. And it got to the point where I, I still loved listening to them, but I had them all almost completely memorized and would have loved to have had more. So that was my first experience with audio fiction, audio drama, audio comedy. I also remember later, like after I got my own cassette player, it wasn't the Sony Walkman. That would have been too cool, but it was uh, it was like a Philips, I don't know. But anyway, I saw in a store that they had the, uh, and I got it on sale, but it was the 12-tape Star Wars A New Hope audio drama. Oh my gosh, yes. And it had Mark Hamill in there, and it had... Um, Anthony Daniels. Had Anthony Daniels, and I... Th- Did it have... Oh, what's his name? Uh, Darth Vader's voice actor. Um, it was not James Earl Jones. No, it did not have James it Earl was, Jones. It's funny because the guy that voiced Darth Vader in those radio dramas pops up again in Star Trek as 
Cisco's father. Yes, I remember that. No, he had a good voice for that. He did. I remember it wasn't James Earl Jones, but the gentleman who did it did a good job. That's one of the things that I have to praise the, you know, it's funny, you're, you're saying this now, I'm like, oh, yeah, I listened to that before I listened to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and a couple of other Star Wars things as well. But one of the things that I think that the actors did very well in that presentation of Star Wars was they were not trying to be Harrison Ford or yes. they weren't trying to be James Earl Jones. They were being their own Darth Vader. They, or their yeah, they were being the character. They were not being the actor playing the character. They were trying to do their best by the character. And, yeah, I it was really jarring at first, and I didn't like it at first. Like, oh, man, this guy doesn't sound like Han Solo. Like, no, he, he does. He yeah. just doesn't sound like Ford's Han Solo. I also really liked the lady who they got to play Princess Leia. Wasn't Carrie Fisher, but I thought she did a great job. With the exception of the torture scene. Yeah, but that was, that was one scene I didn't think. I understand why they put it in, but did we? Bill yeah, it just it, it didn't need to be in there. So it's one of those things that the radio drama really tried to bring to life the things that were happening off screen mm -hmm. in Star Wars. So, yeah, I understand why they put it in there. <laughs> just, that was the one thing that came off a bit corny. Yeah. So I had a couple of other books on tape after the Timothy Zahn Star Wars books came out and that whole genre started exploding again. Yeah. And um, we had Anthony Daniels himself narrating the first book and the other two books in the Thrawn trilogy were picked up by blank. I think his last name is Dalton. I remember the gentleman you're talking about because yeah. I had the second book on tape. It was Dark Force Rising. Yeah, and, and it was voiced by the guy who played Wedge. And he did a great job. He did do a good job. I really liked him. It's funny, I had the first book in paperback, the second book on tape, and the third book in hardback. See, here's the... Well, that is weird. <laughs> that is weird. Uh, <laughs> they did decent abridgments. The pronunciation guides back in the 90s were messed up. Like, yeah. Even, even Anthony Daniels walked in and said, I'm looking at my pronunciation guide, and I was there for filming it. That's not how they said it. But I will give, I will give praise to this in terms of the writing. Timothy Zahn did similar things to your parents when he was doing his road trips for his kids. He ripped the audio from Star Wars and would play the audio for the movies on tape in the car on long road trips. And since the kids had seen Star Wars so much, it was still keeping the film alive for them while they were listening to it. And it went a lot into how he wrote the dialogue when he eventually got the contract to do the Thrawn trilogy, which is one of the reasons why it sounds so good when you if you get the unabridged audiobook mark thompson does a so-so job as a narrator sometimes over emphasizing things that just don't need that much <laughs> emphasis. yeah we don't need shatner in our star wars <laughs> like and luke opened the door like okay we get it we get it but the dialogue actually flows pretty well and in part zahn owed that to the fact that he listened to star wars so darn much and sardonically. So, like I said, I had Dark Force Rising. I had a couple of other Star Wars books as well. 
including the Crystal Star, which I'm glad I had on audiobook because I sure didn't want to read that. You know, I started listening to Star Wars audiobooks that I thought probably weren't worth reading in the first place. Yeah. I think I got the Crystal Star because I didn't read the book, and I saw the tape. It was just months after it had come out, and the tape was on sale. I'm like, okay, I'll pick it up. I'm like, wow, I saved money on that one. You sure did. It's been a long time since I've done books on tape because, well, I stopped having a tape player. And I do remember I had one of the... Wheel of Time books on CD. That was like an eight. That must have taken a long time. It was like an eight-disc set. And... That's nothing. We got the whole Harry Potter series on audiobook. And one time... Here's one of the things. My wife and I listened... This is one of the big compromises in our marriage, was that I would always listen to music or audiobooks to go to bed. And she would go to bed in silence. Well, we compromised on certain audio that we could both listen to to go to sleep. Now we can't go to sleep without it. And Jim Dale does an unearthly, wonderful job with even the less good parts of J.K. Rowling's work. He's a phenomenal voice actor, phenomenal narrator, and he has been a grace to all dozens of those CDs. I have not listened to any of the Harry Potter audio, but after hearing your endorsement, I might give that a try sometime. I have a love-hate relationship with Harry Potter at this point, because I've (laughs) listened to it so much, I can identify all of the worst points where, like, oh, Rowling, you really didn't know where you were going to go with this, did you? Of which there are several, but also, it is so well written for the ear. And I don't think that that's entirely deliberate. It's just part of her writing style. And again, when you have something that's so well-developed for the ear and you have an incredible narrator, Mm -hmm. it just flows so smoothly. So I will admit, there were several years I didn't listen to a lot of audiobooks or audio fiction in any shape or form. I was doing more reading, and I just didn't. But about, I'd say about four years ago, I got back into it, like really, really back into it through podcasts. Yeah. And I was starting to do a lot more walking, trying to get healthier. And listening to music was okay, but I was wanting something. I look at walking and jogging as rather brain dead. You know, I need something to engage my mind or I'm going to get bored quickly. And I'm going to stop doing this. So I was looking through, I had listened to a lot of other podcasts, informational podcasts, history podcasts, and I even was giving Night Vale. That's uh, audio fiction. Yeah, you know, thanks to your recommendation. You're welcome. But I wanted more, and so I started looking around, and the one that popped up was a Star Trek audio fiction podcast called Star Trek Outpost. Oh, no way. Yeah, and it's set in the Star Trek Next Generation timeline. And it's about this deep space station that's... If there's a light side of the Federation, this is a space station that it's farthest from. (laughs) It's about the people in it. And this one guy gets assigned there. He's thinking, like, cool, I'm being promoted. I'm going to be sent to this deep space station, given partial command of the starship attached to it. And then he finds out, wait a minute, this isn't a promotion at all. I'm being sent to the butt end of nowhere. 
Well, good luck, Ensign. Uh, well, the bathroom reclamator goes through your your food processor there, so uh, just be careful what you order for. <laughs> Close enough. This podcast started back in 2008, and for a while they were really good about putting out episodes every couple of months. Now, don't know why, but things have kind of slowed down recently with them. They've only put out a handful of episodes this year, but the latest episode was episode 180. So if you start from the beginning, you have got almost 200 hours worth of audio ahead of you. And I got to say, the level of audio production, quality, and voice acting on most of it really surprised me. Is it the level of the sound effects or just the overall no, they production do, level? They do try to incorporate sound effects, the production level, the editing, and the, and the acting, uh, the voice acting put on by several of the players. Excellent quality. I can see why some of these episodes will take weeks and months to put together because they are just really giving it their all. And here's the thing. I feel like we need to bring Brian in on this. How do you compete as a visual effects artist for the visual effects that you have in your mind as just listening to audio? I mean, if I'm imagining this, the visual effects look flawless. <laughs> do you ever have that thing where you're trying to make it look as good as your imagination? Well, that's actually kind of everything that we do because the producer has an idea of what they want it to look like. And they describe it, and then you, you take that description and you execute it exactly. And the producer says, no, that's not what it looks like at all. <laughs> and when you've got something that's described, everybody sees it in their mind's eye a little bit differently. And as you said, it's always flawless in your imagination. But when you're imagining something like that, could you actually get a really vivid image of it? Because a lot of times at least what I find, is that I've described something to myself and then I go, okay, if I were to paint that, what would it actually look like? And it's not actually an image that I've got in my brain. There's some kind of, there's a level of abstraction that helps you out that you don't have to get all of the details in there. You don't have to get the colors quite right because in your brain, none of that stuff actually exists. But it, once it's something that you have to look at, that's an entirely different story. You get to assume out all the stuff you didn't want to pay attention to. Right. You're just imagining it. Now when you're realizing it, everything has to come together. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you're doing that job and not me, because between <laughs> the two of us, I think I really stink at it. Yeah, I don't actually do very much on that end of it. I'm not a, a concept artist at all. By the time it gets to me, most of the time the effects look has already been well established. There are occasions where as it is a compositor, like, we don't know what this is going to look like, throw some particles at it, and we'll see. And those are the ones that usually go into 20, 30 versions. Well, I think that throw some particles at it, and we'll see if that does it, is also a Star Trek philosophy. So I think this is coming pretty well full circle. <laughs> That's true. Although they get really particular about exactly what the stars in warp are supposed to look like really yeah they're very specific about no it has to look like this go back to this episode and look at it. it's like 
well, we did that, and it looks exactly like that, and you're still telling us it's wrong. Well, I mean, I guess that goes back to where the imagination always trumps what you're seeing. Right. Star Wars is the same way with the lasers. They had this idea that they had a really specific thing that they wanted the lasers to look like. But then you go and you're looking at the movies, and you're like, no example of the lasers in the movie match your description. No kidding. It's like, are they... I think that one time they said the rebel lasers were supposed to be three times longer than the imperial lasers, and they're supposed to travel across the screen at this particular rate, and you go and you're looking at the movies, and you're like, that is not true, ever. <laughs> I, I think I would like to drink toxic things rather than try to sort that out. <laughs> it took a lot of versions before we could finally sell them on any given laser. And I think the truth is, every laser blast was art-directed. There was never a formula. Somebody in production thinks there's a formula, but every single laser blast is like, okay, well, it needs to be this long and go this fast, and it's not going to be the same for the next laser blast. You know, I think that it also gets, when we're getting into some of these difficulties of description, really gets into some of also the nitty-gritty of the audio production of some of these radio plays. Have you ever listened to the Doctor Who radio plays that Big Finish has done? Either of you? I know that nope. they have been getting a lot of press and have been getting a lot of recognition, but I have not listened to any yet. I've listened to both sets of the David Tennant Tenth Doctor adventures, and first of all, David Tennant, is awesome. This is not an opinion. This is objective fact mm -hmm. written into the foundation of the universe. I've discovered uh, it. That is a fixed point in the universe. Yes, exactly. you are correct. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really interesting because as much as the acting is so spot on, there are a couple of times that they have some audio effects added in, and it is meant to deliver a very specific picture. And that was not always entirely clear to me as a listener until, like, the second listen-through or the third listen-through of, oh, this is what you were getting at. And it's really interesting. It makes me wonder what was going on in the discussions as they're engineering this as to what the discussion was between the audio engineers and the production engineers. Not that you two have an answer to that. <laughs> But at least with the visual effects, you at least have something that you can all come together and look at and say, well, yeah, can we, can we all agree on what we're seeing? The answer to that question is no. <laughs> Which is why the audio also sounds a little bit weird, because right. both vision and hearing are very subjective. I got a note to make the blue eye glow a little more orangey. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, speaking of overall quality, especially if so many people coming together to make one unified vision of quality, um, back on the podcast of Star Trek Outpost, oh, one, sorry. one thing I should mention about them is that I praise the voice acting quality and their production quality. I should mention that they have been finalists and winners of several Parsec Podcast Awards and Audioverse Awards for several different categories. So obviously there's are people who take the job of putting together a quality fiction podcast seriously, and it's a labor of love for them. And these are Star Trek fans on a different level. And it's seriously good for them. 
on it's good for them that they're able to have that labor of love and bring it together in such a way that's recognized so broadly. Besides Star Trek Outpost on the subject of fiction podcasts, there's another one is more of a very short fantasy comedy format podcast called Alba Salix. It's like this lady who is a wizard slash healer herbalist in this fantasy world and all the trouble cases keep coming to her and she tries to fix them and of course hilarity ensues. And while it's not exactly traditional fiction, there is a podcast called The Adventure Zone. I have listened to a few of them. And it's about a GM who is running a game. It's a live play episode. It's a live play episode, and he's doing what could roughly be called D&D. There be Gerblins. What is affectionately (laughs) called There Be Gerblins. Yeah, There Be That's also the name of their first story arc. Okay. Here There Be Gerblins. Just as a note to our listeners, there is a lot of not safe for work conversation there. Yeah, the language is definitely colorful in places. And yeah, mature content is not your thing. Go ahead and give that one a pass. One thing that lends to that is that he's running this campaign for his two brothers and his dad. And his dad's never played D&D before. Yeah, that's part of the fun. (laughs) <laughs> but his dad is so in it, and the characters oh, that he has. I mean, all his- the way. His dad's in this hook, line, and sinker. And like Outpost, they have been doing it for a long time. They first started the Adventure Zone podcast back in 2014, and they were just getting out episodes like every two weeks almost. And they've gone beyond like the D&D style of game the one I'm listening to right now, the game that they're playing, is actually set off the rule book of Monster of the Week, which we've talked about a couple of times on the show, and I still really want to get, because I think it's a cool format, a cool idea, and listening to their adventure in it makes me want to play all the more. While we're talking about audio fiction podcast, and this is kind of a non-traditional way, no, I mean, it's, it's non-contemporary, but very traditional is the Thrilling Adventure Hour. Now, it's run its course in terms of it's had its beginning, it's had its end, but almost every single episode is writing and acting gold. It is done in a style of old-timey radio, but for modern writing and modern sensibility. The cadence of the delivery, the really intelligent, smart, quippy writing. It's all punchy. It's all there. It takes it a few episodes to really catch its stride, especially since they have a number of different types of audio segments. I mean, they have two paranormal investigators who really don't want to do any paranormal investigating. They just want to sit in their New York apartment and drink together and love each other. But all these pesky people who have all these paranormal problems keep knocking on the door. And just the dialogue that they were able to get going between those two very fine writers and very fine actors is just impressive. And the fact that they brought in Nathan Fillion over and over again into the space western segment of Sparks, Nevada, Marshall on Mars was made so delicious when Nathan Fillion himself looks at Sparks, Nevada, I imagine, and says, you are the best space cowboy. Across any medium. You said this was called the Thrilling Adventure Hour? Yes. I'm downloading the first episode right now. That's beyond belief. That is the two paranormal investigators 
I would say that they have some of the most unforgettable lines in that one, but that one's good. It's not nearly as good as it gets. I'm seeing that the last episode they did record was in 2017. Did they give an explanation about why they stopped? Really, they have such an amazingly huge cast. They have a diverse set of players who are coming in and doing these roles. They would have it once a month in an auditorium and just getting everybody consistently scheduled. And also, they're writing an hour-long show every month. And these are professional writers. They do Hollywood stuff. We see Mark Evan Jackson, who is currently doing The Good Place, which I so meant to talk about during my geek out, but it's too late now. So these are people that are doing other jobs and just trying to keep everybody together and keep that same steam and keep that same quality of writing for a year was just something that they said, we have to close the door on it. I mean, it's good, and we're closing it while it's good because we just can't keep doing this forever. I think they were doing it for like 10 years. Wow. So the Thrilling Adventure Hour is something that is amazing fiction, and it's also, funny enough, something that my wife and I are both familiar enough to that we sleep to it if we are out traveling somewhere. And my 13-year-old came up and said, Dad, can you please put the Thrilling Adventure Hour on Mom's phone? so we can listen to it during the 22 hours we have in the car in the next coming week. The fact that you, not only you enjoy it, but wife and children all together collectively enjoy this podcast says a lot about it. Also, it says a lot about how you've trained your children. Um, we don't listen to it together. When the Sparks Nevada theme comes on, we sing the theme together. Nice. <laughs> but podcast as a new and fun and wonderful way to experience audio fiction. In the past year, I've gotten more into the, as we used to call it, books on tape, but that's only because I downloaded an app called Hoopla. And with it, I was able to log in to it using my town's library information, my library card for my local library, and I've got access to, I can download books on it, check out movies, and they also have a decent selection of audiobooks. Wait, you can do that from your phone? Yeah. No way. Mm-hmm. Because usually they're really protective about that electronic stuff. Well, let me give you an example. The audiobooks that I have listened to in the past year through Hoopla, here's what I don't understand about it, is if... The fact that I'm a library member means I have access to all of Hoopla's inventory or only stuff that my library has access to. That's what I don't get yet. But anyway, uh, what I have checked out through have been... Uh, this, it's, it's nonfiction, but it's a book called The Plantagenets by author Dan Jones. It's all about the Plantagenet bloodline of uh, Kings of England from... Henry II, Eleanor of Aquitaine, all the way through to the Black Prince of the Hundred Years' War and beyond, and everyone in between. Excellent. It was a great book, but also a very well-done audiobook. Because they had it on there, I also listened to the audiobook of The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings trilogy as well. So good. Uh-huh. And then it was recommended to me because I had listened to the, the Lord of the Rings, but it was an audiobook called NPCs, 
by an author named Drew Hayes. Never heard of him, never heard of the book, but I decided to give it a try because the premise interested me. It drew me in. And the, the premise of the book is you do a role-playing game, and your characters, you know, you interact with the world around you, you interact with the NPCs. What happens to the NPCs after the game is over? Oh. And in this world that the book is set in, after the game is done, the NPCs keep going. Nice. And so we get to see behind the scenes of the NPCs real life. So. Correct. I'll go ahead and talk about what happens in the first chapter. It's these, these four characters. They go into a, a tavern after having had a rough time out in the wild. They decide to order four drinks. The drinks come. They each take a drink, and each of them falls over dead. And you hear the GM around the table saying, well, like, wait, wait, what, why did we just die? Well, you were looking for food in the wild. You failed your wilderness survival roll. And so you didn't know that the mushrooms that you found, while they were immediately poisonous, when combined with alcohol, it mixes into a toxin which kills you. I think I want to not have this GM as my GM. Or friend. And like, or well, neighbor. That's stupid. It's like, well, you should have actually put some points into wilderness survival instead of just trying to do it with nothing. And so now you're dead because you drank alcohol within 24 hours. So that happens at the gaming table. In the world that the GM is describing, we go back to it, and everyone else who is in this bar oh, no. is looking at the table at the four humans who just keeled over. And they'll all look at the bartender like, what did you serve them? Oh no! It's like I don't, I didn't. It just, just this. I just the stuff that you just drank. We just drank that. No, it's fine. That's not the point. It's like we've got four dead bodies in here. We didn't kill them. That's not the point. And it goes from there. Oh my gosh! I haven't read the book. I just, I've just checked it out on audio. But it was very easy to listen to. Very funny. Very well done. As you were talking about with J.K. Rowling. The gentleman who wrote this book wrote it in a way that it was very easy to listen to. And the gentleman, the narrator, a guy named Roger Wayne, does an excellent job of differentiating the different characters without trying to do silly voices. He's That's doing, rough. yeah, he's doing a male and a female human, a male orc, and a male halfling um, or gnome. That's like the four core characters that are in this fantasy world. He does a great job, and I liked it so much, I looked on there and I saw that there were two other books in the series. The second one was called Split the Party, and the third one was Going Rogue. i got to check these out as well. I've listened to all three, and I'm hoping that the author does more, because I'm definitely going to check it out. So thanks to those, and thanks to having an app that lets me check out and download audiobooks for free, I've gotten more into that style of audio fiction recently than I had before. Now all you have to do is just do more walking to fill that time. I do listen to these mostly when I walk, both because it helps me keep my mind occupied and also encourages me to go walking. And I have to be careful that I don't listen to these mostly when I'm driving. Oh, I've missed so many exits that way. <laughs> I will listen when I drive if I'm on a road trip, like with the family or going to an SCA event or something, because at that point, I know I'm in for the long haul. I want to be entertained. And we'll cover with this and some 
some other episode, I'm sure. But I do very well with audio nonfiction when I'm on short trips. Agreed. I've got several podcasts that I've listened to that are nonfiction-based. Like I said, I listen to The Plantagenets, um, which is you know, history. But sometimes you need a dose of fantasy or a dose of, of fiction to break it up. That sounds solid. Well, I think that was about it. Mike, Brian, anything else on it? Not really. I don't listen to a whole lot of auto fiction. The only time I did was when I was driving back to Wichita from California, and I listened to the entirety of A Game of Thrones, uh, which was the only way I was able to get through that book. Wow. <laughs> that sounds like a very long drive. It's uh, 23 hours. Yikes. Yeah, don't tell my history of Christianity professor of this, but I kind of did that with the Canterbury Tales before <laughs> doing a major project on analyzing uh, the function of pilgrimage in that book. But, you know. How do the, the well, Canterbury Tales... really appropriate yeah. to listen to a book about pilgrimage while you're pilgrimaging. Well, I was going to go see my girlfriend for Thanksgiving. I wouldn't call that pilgrimage. So, <laughs> so how does the Canterbury Tales work as an audio medium like that? Wow. Um, this is relying on, like, 22-year-old memory. But I found it entertaining enough. I found the parallels that I was looking for. And so I was able to actually go back and find it when I was doing the fine detail analysis and just turning to those sections of the book. That was also my major mistake. It's like, ooh, I should analyze this concept and write a paper in like three weeks on this big book I've never read before. <laughs> that was a really bad idea. So, <laughs> it, uh, so I, it, yeah, it's, it's just too old of a memory to be able to tell you with any accuracy. I did like it, though. Fair enough. That's what I wanted to know, if you liked it because it's been a long time since I've delved into Chaucer, and I thought about doing it through audiobook. One thing that struck me is it was, at least in terms of the Miller's Tales, a lot more body than I would have thought it would have been. Fair enough. Well, on that note, I think that it is time to head out of audio fiction and to audio survival. Oh, yeah. In which case, Mike, it's time for the zombie apocalypse plan of the week. What okay, the last two were busts. I'll admit <laughs> it. These were bad ideas. I wasn't going to complain. Well, not until the zombies actually came, and then I was absolutely going to complain as I tossed you to them first. But I wasn't going to complain. All right. Well, you know, this is the thing. Is that we're refocusing on perimeter defense. Cool. And we're actually using a tried-and-true tactic that we've used on other lesser animals. And, you know, not to call zombies lesser animals, because they were probably, you know, your friends before they started to turn. But, you know, now all bets are off. And I'm thinking sticky traps. We go industrial <laughs> giant-sized sticky traps around the house of these things, not only is your perimeter defended from other zombies coming in, but those pesky marauders that used to be your neighbors, now they're taking a second look at the fence that you have and not wanting to get bitten. So I think this is solid. I like it. I'm picturing a zombie getting two steps into the sticky trap. Like, rrr, 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 rrr. <laughs> 
Hmm. <laughs> Me looking at the zombie through my binoculars. Oh, I feel sad now. I'm over it. <laughs> He'll have some friends to keep him company soon enough. Oh, and what audio fiction are we playing to the zombies to keep them entertained while they're there? Dante's Inferno? Good enough for me. <laughs> well, I think that will wrap it up for us. I want to say thank you for listening in. Make sure that you check us out online at geekatarms.com and on Facebook at facebook.com slash geekatarms. And uh, Mike, we've got a Twitter now. What are we on the Twitterverse? You know, the Twitterverse kind of, when I typed in Geek at Arms, they gave us something a little bit different than I expected. We are at Arms Geek, which sounds like we're working out a lot more than we actually are. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Check us out on Twitter at Arms Geek. And soon we'll even have a YouTube channel to which I'll have our first video up, hopefully not long after this podcast posts. If I could, just for one minute to urge our listeners, um, take a visit to us on our iTunes, because if you enjoy this podcast, and if you're listening to this episode this far in, you probably do. Leave us a review. When you leave a review, that's how other users find new podcasts predominantly. So give us a review, and if we think it's witty enough, can we say this? Can we read it on the air? Why not? Yeah, why not? Because it's our podcast. There's no rules for this. Make it really witty. We'll read it on the air. Offer not valid for one-star reviews. <laughs> and with that final encouragement from Brian, Mike, and James, we want to say be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at facebook.com forward slash geek at arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome. 